All right, so you know at the Serve Tucson, the uh, Music for the City event we got coming up, one of the things that's going to be done is free haircuts. Um, we're hoping, you know, there'll be some people there that just can't afford to get haircuts, so we're going to provide them haircuts. But in order to get a haircut, one of the things you need is towels. So we need towel donations. If you've got some old towers, towels you're willing to donate, just make sure they're clean, and then uh, drop them off at the church and let... Uh, Wherever you, you know, whoever you leave them with, let them know it's for Restore Tucson, and we'll make sure they get, they get used. All righty. Okay. So we've been, uh, I introduced you the book of Daniel last week. And um, let me just set the stage, because I left you with a two-parter. One part last week, two part this week. But if you weren't here last week, it's all good. It, you, you won't feel like you really missed out on anything. Let me catch you up. The king of Babylon... His name is Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream. And it wasn't just a normal dream. We all have dreams, sometimes weird dreams. This was a dream sent by God, and it really troubled him. So he woke up the next day, and he called in all of his advisors. And these were, you know, religious people, magi and astrologers, and maybe some just regular advisors if he had any. And he said, listen, guys, I've had this dream, and it really bothers me. I need you to interpret for me. And they said, great, tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it meant. And he said, oh, no, you tell me the dream and what it meant. Nobody can tell you the dream you had. Only a God can do that. And gods don't live on earth. You tell us the dream, we'll tell you what it meant. And he said, no, if you don't tell me what I dreamt and what it means, I'm going to kill you all, every advisor in my kingdom. Well, at this point, they're freaking out. Well, somebody comes up to you and says, tell me what I dreamed last night or I'm going to kill you. You know you're going to die. So Daniel went to the king and said, give me a little time. And then he and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, prayed to God and said, God, we're in your hands. The king is going to kill all of us unless you reveal this mystery. So God, would you please have mercy on us and reveal the, the mystery? And sure enough, that night, Daniel was given a vision. Next day, he goes to the king. And the king says, well, can you interpret my dream? And Daniel, oh, it cracks me up. I would say, yes, I got, I, got, I got the answer. Don't kill me. Daniel goes, there is no magi, no human being, nobody on the planet who can do what you ask, O king. But there is a God in heaven. And he has revealed the mystery. And now Dan is going to tell him his dream. So maybe the king's sitting like this, all skeptical. Go ahead. But then Daniel starts to tell him his dream, and I'm sure he gets on the edge of his seat. Here's what he says. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue. Immediately, the king knows, Daniel knows his dream. And he goes and he gives the details. It was an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, they were all broken to pieces. And the wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock, 
the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And the king's going, yeah, yeah. And now I'm going to interpret it for you. All right. So he starts off, he says, you, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. You are the head of gold. Okay, Daniel's life is hanging by a thread. He's going to be killed. And he says, can you give me the interpretation of my dream? And his first response isn't yes. His first response is, nobody can do this. What you're asking, it's impossible. But there is a God in heaven. Daniel builds it up to honor God. He takes the occasion, not to save his own life, but to first build up God. He takes the occasion to witness to the king of Babylon, who could have his head in any second, to tell him that there's one true and living God. And then he tells him the dream, and then this is how he starts to interpret it. The God of heaven has given you dominion, power, and might. He's back to testifying about God again. There is a real God king. Your people don't worship him. Doesn't say that. Doesn't need to say it. Says the God of heaven, the one I'm talking to you about, he's in charge here. He's given you this dream. He's giving you an interpretation. You're the head of gold. And why are you the head of gold? Because he made you the head of gold. It's all about God, Nebuchadnezzar, not about you. Now you think about it. You're the king of Babylon. You just conquered Daniel's people. So you're going to have no respect for their God. You're going to think his God's weak. That the God of Israel is no more real than any of the other gods because he conquered them too. Daniel's setting it right. Oh no, you conquered our people because God wanted you to conquer our people. We've got a unique God and he uses all people. So, okay, there's a statue. You're the head of gold. But Daniel isn't just interpreting a dream. He's testifying about the God of Israel. He's telling him about who the true God is. I mean, how else would Babylon, the superpower of the world, know about God unless somebody tells them? How are your neighbors going to know about God unless somebody tells them? Your mom, your uncle, your cousin, your friend, your daughter, your coworker, unless somebody tells them. Well, they worshiped a bunch of weird gods, but they didn't know what the word God really means. So after Daniel introduces God just by interpreting the dream, the Babylonians, these wise men, and King Nebuchadnezzar would have learned at least five things about the one true and living God. Just by simple deduction, just thinking it through. Let me share with you at least the five things they would have learned. One, the obvious one, God is real. None of these other gods spoke and said, oh, we've got the answer to your dream. But the God of Israel did. He interacts with people. He's aware and he cares and he's active. He's the real God. So the first thing the Babylonians would have known is that the God of Israel, our God, the one true and living God is real. He's not a statue. He's not a fable. He's not a myth or a hope. He's real. That's the first thing. Second thing, he knows everything. He's big. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He knew what the king dreamt. And now in just a few minutes, we're going to see that the rest of the dream has to do with the future. So God even knows the future. God's omniscient. He knows all things. Their gods, they believed they were real, even though they had no real evidence. But their gods didn't know all things. 
not only was it evident in this situation, but, you know, the gods just don't speak to them. So the God of Israel is real. He knows all things. He's huge. And he's sovereign. That means he's in control of everything. The gods of the ancient peoples, they had lots of gods. So one guy, god might be in charge of rivers. Another might be in charge of hills. And another might be in charge of the weather. And another might be in charge of bread and fish. They just had all sorts of little bitty gods that were impotent. No, the God of Israel is in charge of everything, which is pretty evident because he's given you a kingdom, and now he's telling you about that kingdom, and he's telling you about the future kingdoms that'll come. Not only is he real, not only does he know everything, omniscient, not only is he sovereign, but he's superior to all the other gods because all the other gods were represented right there, and none of the wise guys could come up with what the king dreamt. Now, of course, they couldn't interpret it because they had no idea what he dreamt. So all those other gods meant nothing. The God of Israel, our God, is superior to all other gods. And God is love. They would have learned that too. Now, how by interpreting a dream can you say, Steve, they could have deduced that God is love? It's got nothing to do with the dream. It's got to do with the fact that all their lives were at stake and God stepped in to save them. And why would he do that? They don't even worship him. They worship demons because the false gods are really just demons. So the God of Israel loves people so much that he will spare the priests of demon worshipers when they're going to be executed. That's a big heart. But knowing that, that, that our God is that way, who's, who's out there beyond your love? Who can you say doesn't deserve your love because they're too bad? God is love. God loves everybody. God even loves people who worship the devil. He wants to get them away from that lie. He wants to save their souls. He's not going to you know, take them all to heaven if they're worshiping the devil, but he loves them. He cares for them. He makes his reign to fall upon the just and the unjust. In other words, Atheists who are wealthy and well-fed, God's blessing them and letting them be wealthy and well-fed. We need to adjust our love level upwards to be the same as God's. Somebody asked me this week, I think it was in our Wednesday night class, it might have been, about the love of God. And God's love is not exclusive, you know, God is still just. He still punishes evil. He's, he's the one that made hell to send Satan there. And he'll send people there if they want to go and don't want to get saved. So when I say God is love, I'm not saying, you know, somebody breaks in your house at 3 in the morning with an axe, hand him a tract. You know, I, I just made up this line. Do you love the axe murderer? Sure, love him to death. <laughs> Greet him at the door with a shotgun. See, we, the Bible's more than one verse. Love people. So how do you love an axe murderer at 3 in the morning? At that moment, you don't. You know, but if he lives, you can go to prison and witness to him. You can visit him in the hospital. You could be having events like Restore Tucson trying to feed people so they don't have to resort to breaking into your house at 3 in the morning. There's all sorts of aspects to love. Just don't believe when I say that we have to raise our love that we have to do it in a stupid way and make ourselves vulnerable to bad people. As I've heard it said before, the Greek word for love that's most commonly used is agape. But it's not sloppy agape. It's intelligent agape. 
All right, so they could have learned five things about God. God is real, God is omniscient, God is sovereign, he's superior to all the other gods, and God is love. The rest of the dream, after the head, it's all prophecy. It's all about their future. So this then emphasizes God's omniscience and his sovereignty, his knowing everything and his controlling everything. So he says, after you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Now, I know a little bit about ancient Middle Eastern history. I know exactly what happened. After Babylon, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians took over. Now, remember, that was Daniel's future. It was Nebuchadnezzar's future, but to us, it's history. So they were looking forward to it. We can look back to it and tell you that it was fulfilled. They died. They didn't know it was going to be fulfilled. How did they know that any of the stuff Daniel said was real? I'll tell you how they knew. Because Daniel already told them what was in his mind that nobody else knew. The fact that he had the ability to do that made the rest of his prophecy believable. So, head of gold, Babylon. After you will arise a kingdom inferior to yours. So the gold is replaced by two arms of silver on the statue. The head, one united kingdom, very wealthy, prosperous, and powerful, gold. The next kingdom, not quite as wonderful, silver. And it's kind of cool that it's two arms and a chest because the next kingdom isn't... It's a very unique kingdom. It's two kingdoms in one. It's the Medes, the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire. So it's one kingdom, but it's really two kingdoms that merged and it, two arms. So I thought that was kind of cool that God did it that way. So the Babylonians were replaced by the Medo-Persian Empire. Then it says, after that, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. The Greeks replaced the Persians. But what you may not know is the Greek period is known as the Bronze Age. And on the statue, God said it's going to be bronze. This was hundreds of years before it happened. So when we look back, we go, ooh and ah, but to them it was amazing. It was, it was prophecy. So the great reign of the Greeks is known as the Bronze Age. That's the part of the statue. It was bronze. But how did the Greeks come in? The Babylonians were replaced by the Medes and the Persians in a very interesting way. Do you remember the guy who saw the handwriting on the wall? He died right after that. But he was having this big revelous party. Apparently, the city was just totally unaware of invaders. And they snuck in under the river, through the river under the gates, and came in into the palace and took over the palace without... There was battle in the palace, but there was no war. It's not like the Assyrians, I mean the um, Medes and the Persians surrounded Babylon and fought for three months and took them over. No, they just snuck in and took over the kingdom like that. It was a really amazing thing. Okay, so that's how the Persians took over the Babylonians. How did the Greeks take over? Okay, so here's what happens. The Greeks are starting to become something. But the Persians have power, and the Greeks are starting to rebel against their power. So Ahasuerus... Uh, Xerxes, he's the king from the book of Esther. Same guy. He sends an army, some historical accounts say a million people to go conquer Greece and put them down once and for all. And the Greeks got a bunch of Spartans to help them, 300 in particular. And they went to this certain pass. And the 300 Spartans said, we will not let the Persian pass this pass. 300 Spartans held off a, a million-man army. Well, yes and no. It was a narrow pass, <laughs> but it was, it was amazing that these guys could stand as long as they did. But while they're fighting, somebody told the Persians, hey, there's another way around. So they took them on another path around, and then they came up. 
so the Spartans were destroyed and the Greeks were conquered in land battle. Ahasuerus was strutting around like a peacock. We did it again. Nothing could stop the mighty Persian army. But they also had sent in a naval fleet. And the naval fleet was decimated. So they won on land, but they lost at sea. So Ahasuerus was stuck there without his reinforcement, without his troops, with a half victory, and he kind of grudgingly went back home. Had a beauty contest and married a new Jewish woman, and then we got the book of Esther. Not right away, but... So that's kind of what, what, what happened there. So the Greeks were never bothered by the Persians again. So the Greeks kept reaching out, and finally, a, a general like none other, his name was Alexander. You know him as Alexander the Great pushed into Persia and took over, and then the Greeks took over everything. By the way, you know, between, I don't know, 500 and 300 B.C., probably right at 500 B.C., you would call the Golden Age of Greece. But what was happening in Israel at this time? Well, we had already had our Golden Age at 1,000 B.C. under King Solomon. We had declined. Our temple had been destroyed. We'd come back. So right after all that had happened, now Greece has its golden age. So even though Greece is ancient, gives you an idea of the biblical stories of ancient Israel and Judah are even more ancient, 500 years more ancient for the golden age at least. All right, verse 40, next kingdom. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. You probably know from school, the next kingdom, the most awesome of them all, was Rome. Rome came in and decimated the Greeks, took over everything, and just expanded like locusts. They just crushed and smashed everything in their way. Rome was unstoppable. They were amazing. Now, the Babylonian Empire only survived in that huge area till about 600 BC. They, they didn't last very long, even though they were immense and huge. The Persians only till about 300 B.C., so a couple 300 years, not much. The Greeks to about 200 B.C., again, a couple hundred years at most. But the Romans, most historians would say they lasted to about 500 A.D. Some would say that their empire lasted a thousand years. You know, Babylon's gone. Nobody cares about Greek or Greece anymore. But there's still something going on in Rome. And it's interesting, back to the statue, it had two legs. You know, the Roman Empire was in the west, it was in Rome for a while, and then they moved it to Constantinople, the capital, and it became part of the east. So some people see in the two legs of the statue the eastern and western empire. Maybe, maybe not. But Rome seemed to last forever, and in a sense, it's still there. I mean, we got the, you know, the Roman Catholic Church headquartered in Rome still, which is pretty interesting. Because as the prophecy continues, it doesn't stop with these two legs. Already, Daniel has given the future for a thousand years from Nebuchadnezzar's time. All of that has been history to us, so we can see that it was fulfilled, just like the scripture said it would be. But some of this vision has to do with our future, too. And that's the part we're going to look at now. You have to understand that according to this vision... The final phase, or the final kingdom, had two phases. The legs of iron, as I told you, represented Rome. That's been fulfilled. But then you had the toes that were mixed with iron and clay. That's a different aspect. Let me read to you. 
Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but itself will endure forever. So according to Daniel's prophecy, there's one, well, there will be ten kingdoms left, and they will be destroyed by this rock that's cut without human hands and fills the earth. So that's God's kingdom, kingdom of Christ. It says that this kingdom, as I just said a second ago, uh, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It won't be left to another, and itself will endure forever. So we still have ten kings to go, whoever they're going to be, or kingdoms, to be smashed by Christ, who will set up his kingdom. So Jesus told his disciples, when you pray, pray this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Daniel prophesied about that kingdom. Jesus told his disciples, pray for that kingdom to come. How many of you want Jesus' kingdom to come? Let me see your hands. Yeah. Join me. I pray for it every day, more than once a day. I really want God's kingdom set up on earth. I really do. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more hunger, no more crime. I can't wait for that kingdom to come. If there's anything worth praying for, God, may your kingdom come. He said the Medes and the Persians would come, and they did. He said the Greeks were going to come, and they did. In fact, in another chapter, they're actually mentioned by name. He said the Romans would come, and they did. Now he says these ten kingdoms will arise. They haven't, but they will. Just like everything else would. It was prophesied, it was fulfilled. God's word is true. So I'm looking forward to it. So people today are trying really hard to understand Daniel's prophecy. What do the ten toes represent? Ten more kings or kingdoms. Which one, Steve? I don't know. They haven't been fulfilled yet. So it's like we're trying to understand something that hasn't happened yet. You can't do that. You've got to wait till it happens. Then maybe you can see it. And when it's passed, then you can point back and say it definitely happened. But Steve, maybe if the European Union finally settles into just ten member nations, could that be the ten toes? Absolutely. Or not. Don't know. So there's people writing books and analyzing politics, trying to figure it out. That's cool. Maybe even a little helpful. But when all said and done, we don't know. All we know is that ten kingdoms will arise. In a few chapters, there's a little more detail about them, but not much. And that God's going to come and put an end to them and set up his kingdom. Don't know when, don't know how, don't know where. I just know it will be. That I do know. It will be. So, let me sum it up for you. Daniel introduced Nebuchadnezzar and the religious leaders of Babylon to the God of Israel. And they could have deduced five things. God is real. God is omniscient. God is sovereign. He's superior to all the other gods. And God is love. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon needed someone to show them God. That's why, I mean, God sent the children of Israel over there to do that. To punish them also, but to do that. Now, we're a bunch of Daniels because Americans need somebody to show them God. 
And that's our job. We're Daniel. Say, oh, America's or, Americans already know about God. Uh-uh. No, that's not the case. This is a Christian nation. No, there are a lot of Christians here. And a lot of the people who started our nation were Christian. So maybe on paper we're a Christian nation. Did you know that according to an article I read just last week in a major news source, one in five Americans claim zero religious affiliation? You say, wow, one in five. Well, that's not so bad, Steve. It's a 25% increase from five years before. At that rate, we're going to be a completely heathen country within just a few years. Today, you, you just ask a random person at work, hey, what can you tell me about Peter, the Apostle Peter? Um, I don't know. What's an apostle? Oh, what, oh I, yeah, that was one of Jesus' friends, right? Yeah, I knew. That, that's the most you might get out of most people. Um, can you tell me about Moses? Wasn't he a basketball player? That's the kind of answers you're going to get out there. People don't know about God. And even if they've heard about him, even if they went to church a few times, do you think they know he's real, that he actually interacts in human affairs? If God has acted in your life in a way that's just beyond coincidental, you saw a miracle or a mighty hand of God in your life at one point, would you please put up your hand? Almost everybody in the room. Share your stories. Tell people. God is real. How are they going to know unless you tell them? Daniel shared an amazing miracle to get their attention. You can share your miracles to get your friends' attention. That's why you know God is real, or they can know God is real. God knows everything. Point out the prophecies of Daniel to them. Let them see what God has prophesied about Persia, Greece, Rome. It's in the Bible. You know, the prophecies of Daniel, because there's another one that talks about this whole thing, but with even more detail, and there's several other prophecies with even more detail, they're so accurate and so detailed that historians and archaeologists are trying to make Daniel written later than it actually is. Because here's what they say. Oh, this is an accurate picture of 1,000 years of history, so it must have been written after 1,000 years of history passed because there's no way it could have been written beforehand. That's, that, that doesn't happen. So they try to make Daniel live a thousand years later than he did. But then they find archaeological evidence that puts Daniel way back in history. So now they're confused. So they say, oh, that must have been another Daniel. Last I've heard, they've come up with four Daniels trying to make the Bible make sense to them. Well, I'll tell you what, one Daniel who God spoke to. In fact, Daniel was so knowledgeable about things that the prophet Ezekiel, who lived at the same time, when he was talking to another uh, group of people who thought they were all smart, he said, are any of you as smart as Daniel? He used Daniel as the example to put them all to shame. So when you share, you can share that God is real. You can share that he knows everything and that he's in control of human affairs. Listen, out in the lobby is a voter's guide where all the candidates are interviewed and asked a bunch of questions and then their responses are given. So that, that will help you pick your candidate. I would strongly encourage you to pick candidates who stand for godly values. I'm not talking about Christian candidates. You don't always have that option. In fact, for president, you don't have that option. 
but one of those two presidents, his values are going to be more in line with yours than the other. Vote for that one. So the guides out there, I encourage you to pick one up. We have the opportunity in this country to vote for our president. But when all said and done, whoever wins, and I've got my preference, but whoever wins, I'm still going to praise God. Because God is sovereign. God's in control. When we have a great president, is God more in control than when we have a bad president? No. Well, then why does God let us have bad presidents? You know, whatever. God knows what he's about. You know, we may not know what God's about, but trust him. He's trustworthy. He's working things out so his plan could be fulfilled. And I do know this. He never promised us a comfortable life. But all things work together for good for those who love God. He promised us a perfect outcome for every believer. Every believer. So whether you get your president of choice or not, I can't say. But go out there and pick. And maybe God will use you to promote his sovereign will. He's real, he's omniscient, he's sovereign. He's superior to all the other gods. I don't have to name all the other religions right now. But if we thought they were true, we'd be in their churches. We don't. There's one God, maker of heaven and earth, who displayed in both the Old and New Testament, and he's the God we worship. He sent his son Jesus to die for our sins, which brings us to number five, God is love. Yeah, he saved a bunch of Babylonian idol worshipers from destruction, but he sent his son to die for our sins. Who would do that? I wouldn't send one of my sons to die for any of your sins, but he sent his. God is love. People need to know, but they need to know it's not sloppy agape. Just because Jesus died for them doesn't mean they're getting an instant ticket to heaven. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Those who come to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him, says the book of Hebrews, and that those who reject him will find their place with the devil and his angels in the lake of fire, which burns forever and ever. God is love. He will do everything within his power and heart to save errant mankind. But he shares the choice with us. We can choose to follow Jesus or not. I would encourage you, for those of you who may be listening, who haven't made that decision, to think on it very seriously. God sent his son to die for you. Sin is extremely important. has to be dealt with, and only Jesus can deal with it. I would encourage you to reject sin. Sin are those things that displease God. Sin is doing things God doesn't want you to do. Sin is also not doing things God does want you to do. And most importantly, sin is what's in us, our inability to change those first two things. Repent of that, forsake it, and pledge yourself to Jesus, believing he died for you and rose again, and you too will be saved. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for sharing with us the message of Daniel. Thank you for using him Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael to teach us lessons. And I pray, God, that we would truly learn the lessons, that we would be sold out witnessing God followers. Please help us to be that. And I also pray that you would give us the opportunity to meet people and to share the message with them. You made divine appointment for Daniel. Make divine appointments for us, Lord. Of course, we don't want our lives on the line, but whatever it takes, we'll do whatever you would have us do. 
And also, Lord, we trust you during our election season that whoever you raise up will fulfill your plan. But I just pray that it would do so smoothly. I pray that all the foolish decisions that were made and are being made right now by our government to spend more than we have would be undone. I pray our government would stop messing with social engineering, just focus in on the things it's supposed to be doing, like fixing our roads and protecting our borders and, and protecting us overseas. Lord God, your will be done, your work be done. Bless us and keep us and help us to be a blessing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yevarecha Karanai Vishmarecha Yair Adonai Panavalecha Vikunecha Yisarunai Panavalecha Yosem Lecho Shalom. May the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. God bless you all. See you later.